Welcome back to my Bible study podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and today we're going to dive further into the deep end of the book of Zephaniah. We've been working through the 12 minor prophets, and Zephaniah is book number 9 on the list. Last episode was the Zephaniah overview episode. We walked through the whole book, a book that in the long term describes that God's faithful plan to redeem his people will come alongside judgment on all people on the great and awesome day of the Lord. But this book also talks about how in the short term, Israel will be judged and sent into exile. In this episode, I want to touch a little more on the parallels between the day of the Lord language in Zephaniah and the language of the flood that we find in Genesis. I also want to expand on some of the connections with the book of Deuteronomy that Zephaniah has. I want to touch on the contrast between the people and leaders of Jerusalem and the characteristics of God, and then I want to touch on a few specific verses, like Zephaniah 1.7 and 3.17. It should be a much shorter episode than the overview episode was. I pray that we might find some of these interesting and enlightening, but more than that, that the more we dive into the book of Zephaniah, the more all of us can learn to lean further into Jesus as our Lord and Savior. In the overview episode, we talked some about how the language of the day of the Lord is a language of deconstruction, how it follows the reverse order of creation, and that that deconstruction then allows a new creation, a recreation from God on the day of the Lord. But it's also similar language to the language that God gave to Noah before the flood. There is a sweeping away of almost everything from the earth. So Zephaniah 1-2 says, I will utterly sweep away everything off of the surface of the earth, says Yahweh. But in Genesis 6-7, right before the flood, Yahweh said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the surface of the ground, man along with animals, creeping things, and birds of the sky. Then in Genesis 7-4, he says, Every living thing that I have made I will destroy from the surface of the ground. So through the flood, God kind of hit restart on creation through the line of Noah. On the final day of the Lord, God will consummate those followers of Jesus as a new creation, living on a new earth, worshiping Jesus in the new Jerusalem. We also talked some in the overview episode about all the connections that Zephaniah has to the book of Deuteronomy. There was a lot of talk in Zephaniah and also around King Josiah, king of Judah at that time, that was centered about the Shema verse found in Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. Hear Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There was also a lot of judgment language that stems from the covenant blessings and curses that are found in Deuteronomy 28 through 31. But if you think that I'm reaching to connect the dots of Zephaniah to the covenant curses of Deuteronomy, then beyond just the thematic connections, listen to some of these textual hyperlinks that Zephaniah 1 and Deuteronomy 28 have between them. Deuteronomy 28.30 ends, You shall build a house and shall not dwell therein. You shall build a vineyard and shall not use its fruit. And Deuteronomy 28.39 says, You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Compare those 
to Zephaniah 1.13, which ends, Yes, they will build houses, but won't inhabit them. They will plant vineyards, but won't drink their wine. There's big similarities there. Then in Deuteronomy 28.29, it says, And you shall grope at noonday as the blind gropes in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed always, and there shall be none to save you. Compared to the NIV translation of Zephaniah 1.17, which starts, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Make no mistake about the language. The fate of the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem was sealed because of their disobedience to God and their breaking their covenant with him. Okay, so bear with me for a minute as I logic through some stuff to make what I think is an interesting connection here. So the book of the law talked about in the Kings and Chronicles chapters about the king of Josiah. The book of the law discovered was discovered around 622 BC. The book of the law was almost certainly the book of Deuteronomy, full of those warnings of covenant curses for disobedience. We believe that the prophecy of Zephaniah took place shortly after the book of the law was rediscovered in around 622, and in the previous section, we really highlighted the connection between Zephaniah and Deuteronomy, between the fate of the Israelites and those covenant curses. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria in around 722 BC as a consequence of their disobedience to their covenant with God. This book, describing the exile that would come upon Judah for their covenant disobedience to God, probably took place in 622 BC. So on the 100th anniversary of the fall of the northern kingdom, we get this rediscovery of the book of the law and a prophecy about the coming exile of the southern kingdom. A visibly blunt reminder of the consequences of running from God in disobedience. So when is coincidence not really coincidence? When God is in control of the timeline, which I'll note is always, he is always in control of the timelines here. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then in Zephaniah 1.3, we hear God say, I will sweep away man and animal, I will sweep away the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the heaps of rubble of the wicked. I will cut off man from the surface of the earth, says Yahweh. We've talked about the deconstruction of creation, but it isn't just about the deconstruction of living things. It is also a deconstruction of the things that living things construct to worship over God. Listen to the ending of verse 3 from a few different translations. The NLT says, I will reduce the wicked to heaps of rubble and will wipe humanity from the face of the earth. The ESV says, The rubble of the wicked I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. The NASB says, The ruins along with the wicked. Then the NIV says, The idols that cause the wicked to stumble. In Hebrew, the word is makshalah, which literally means idol or stumbling block. It's not just about the wicked people. It's about God tearing down the idols that are worshipped by the wicked people. The man-made constructs that act as stumbling blocks for God's people. 
So with very vivid imagery and prophesied destruction, God, through the prophet Zephaniah, aims to awaken his people from their idolatry and their complacency. He desires his people to repent and lean into him. Be silent at the presence of the Lord Yahweh, for the day of Yahweh is at hand, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Zephaniah 1.7 So the meaning of the end of verse 1.7 here is kind of hard to catch. The CSB, the ESV, the NASB, and the World English Bible translations all have something similar to the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. The NIV says the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. The NLT says the Lord has prepared his people for a great slaughter and has chosen their executioners. So there are a lot of very biblical words used here, right? Like consecrated and sacrifice. But what's going on here? God is preparing a sacrifice, but it's not going to be the blood of bulls and goats at the hands of the unholy priests. It's going to be a sacrifice of the Israelites of Judah. As McComsky notes, to speak of the day of the Lord as a day of sacrifice places it within the long biblical tradition that where there is sin, there must also be death. All of this is a precursor to Jesus, right? The one sacrifice for all. So the ESV translation of Hebrews 10 verses 4 through 7 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Then, continuing in Hebrews 10.10, it says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And lastly, in Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Also, verses 1-7 and 1-14 bookend the passage here with the phrases that the day of Yahweh is near and at hand. This language is really focused on the impending immediacy of the day. I know we discussed it some last episode, and we referenced how both the apostles Paul and Peter referenced it as coming like a thief in the night, but I wanted to really land that point home again. We should be aggressively seeking the Lord in a way that opens our hearts to transformation. And we should also be actively waiting on the Lord with eager and imminent expectations. In Zephaniah 3 verses 1 through 5, we see this incredible contrast between the actions of the people of the city of Jerusalem, including their leaders, and the character of God. Some of these notes are from McComsky's commentary on the Minor Prophets, with contributions from J. Alec Meyer, who is one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. So first, let's contrast the inhabitants of Jerusalem in verse 3-2 with God in verse 3-5. So the people did not listen, even though God is always speaking and never absent. The people would not accept discipline, even though God constantly made his decisions known. 
The people would not trust God, even though God is totally trustworthy and has proved it. And the people did not draw near to God, even though God is always available. Second, let's contrast the leaders in Jerusalem in verses 3, 3, and 4 with God again in verse 3, 5. So it says, the princes failed in their duty and abandoned their responsibilities. But God is never away from his post. The judges thought about only how to satisfy themselves. But God is constantly just and always true. There were prophets who were treacherous, but God's word is always faithful and never fails. There were priests that defiled the holy temple, but God is always righteous. So if we list off the failed leaders listed, princes, judges, prophets, priests, we find that every single one of these are also titles that describe Jesus, who steps in and who perfectly fulfills the roles that humanity could not fulfill. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the True Judge, the Perfect Word of God, and our Great High Priest. Yahweh, your God, is in the midst of you, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will calm you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 So the last verse I really wanted to unpack is chapter 3, verse 17. It's an awesome verse. So the start of 317 is clearly a Messianic reference. The ESV Bible says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The NIV says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. NLT says, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. Christ is present in Zephaniah 3.17, no matter which translation you read. He is the mighty one who will save, the mighty warrior who saves, the mighty Savior your God who is living among you. The prophecies of Zephaniah are absolutely connected to Christ and to his second coming. So how should that affect us today? How should these descriptions affect our mindsets? Well, for those of us who are Christians, who have turned toward Jesus in faith and repentance and received the gift of salvation through his completed work on the cross, well, this should cause us to rejoice and worship. Verse 317 ends, He will rejoice over you with joy. He will calm you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is talking about Jesus the Messiah rejoicing and singing over us. About Jesus calming us with his love. Like just Shema that a moment. Hear it and let it marinate in your heart. Jesus, the King of Kings, the great high priest, the perfect savior of the world, rejoicing and singing over us. Calming us in his love. These words should reinvigorate us to lean into him further. This book should cause us to press into him more in faith and worship and repentance. And for anyone who is not a follower of Jesus, who might be curious about this Jesus thing or whatever, know that being saved by the Mighty One is just a decision away. Repent, turn toward Jesus, trust in him and his saving work on the cross. Believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his coming return. And be brought into the experience of his calming love. I wanted to get into the I will promises of God found in Zephaniah chapter 1 
and specifically the Hebrew word Asaf. But when I was compiling all my notes for that section, I really got caught up in the idea of how that phrase just spans across all of Scripture. Like that word is found 200 times in 187 verses in the Old Testament. So I made the executive decision to do a separate podcast on just the I wills of God found in Scripture, specifically the Old Testament. I'm not sure when I'll drop that episode, but be on the lookout for that one day soon. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. I tried to call out the other translations as I used them. I know I used the NIV, the NLT, the ESV, and the CSB, and I think the NASB once or twice also, but I called them out when I used them. Um, Next week, I'm going to try to continue working through the Minor Prophets and the Book of Haggai. Until next time, I love y'all.